Welcome to the Coop Tank. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, coming to you from Sweet Recording in beautiful Mount Laurel, New Jersey. You know, people, if you have a podcast or a video cast or you want to record an audio book or, you know, even if you need a studio built, Sweet Recording is a place for you. Matt and Joe not only are great guys, but they know what they're doing and they won't, they won't rip you off. So look them up. Go to Sweet, S-U-I-T-E, recording.com or email them at hello at sweetrecording.com. Anyway, we have, a, we have a great show today. We have a, a, a fellow Cherry Hill East guy, which I always love when, even though I lived on the west side, we'll let, him, we'll let him skate on that. I always love when people from my high school come here because, you know, I, I drove by the high school and it still looks the same and I heard the insides are still the same. But he's, uh, he's an actor and he's played football and he's been a restaurateur. So yeah, I guess he, he's pretty much an entrepreneur. He just has a lot of things going. And my guest is Stink Fisher. How you doing, Stink? I'm doing great, Steve. Thanks for having me. You know I'm going to ask. And every interview you do, I know the first question. Yeah, I'm here gonna, it I'm comes. Gonna, I'm going to be a hack. Here it comes. How old are you? No. Uh, <laughs> 32. Stink. Okay, because it's funny because for acting, I think it's great because there's no Stink Fishers in SAG. It's a great story and I can fair, uh, I wanna, but tell me share about, that with you. Tell me about uh, how you got the name Stink. Okay, well. Way back when, when I was a wee lad on the west side of Cherry Hill, which is, you know, not so bad as, as uh, one would think, I was very athletic. I wanted to play ball with the older kids. I was, I was a good athlete, and I, I always wanted to play whatever they were doing, I wanted to play. It didn't matter what the sport was. And this one day, they're riding by my house on bikes. I'm like, hey, Fisher, you want to play wiffle ball? I was like, yeah, sure. So I got hopped on my bike, and we rode up to Diane's Furs, which was right on uh, <laughs> on Chapel Avenue. And the wall in the parking lot was perfect for a strike zone. They, we actually had a spray-painted strike zone on the wall that they never took off. And I'm playing and playing. And at some point in time, I have to go to the bathroom. I got to go home because I got to I gotta go to the bathroom. Right. The real deal. And they're like – Dude, you're not you're not leaving. You're not going anywhere. We're playing, and I'm like, I, I gotta go to the bathroom. I'm like, go in the dumpster. So, I go in the dumpster. I, I'm like a young kid, and I'm playing with these older guys. I don't want to I don't want to lose my spot. I, you know what I mean? You know how it is. So I go in the dumpster, and then I'm like, I you know, couldn't finish my business in there. I didn't know what the, what the hell to do. So that day passes. You know, I continue to play and whatever. And like a week later, I'm, I'm coming home from school and I see written on my garage door in pencil, Stinky Fisher's house with a Y. And then my parents are like, what is that all about? I'm like, I don't know. I have no idea. I don't know. So, you know, my dad painted over it. We forgot about it. Fast forward to years later, I'm an actor and there was a Bill Fisher that played, that did some work in SAG in like the 1920s. And the dude is still paying his dues in the late 1990s. It's unreal. And back at that time in SAG, you could only be one Bill Fisher, one Tom Cruise, one Tom Hanks. It didn't matter. You could not have like multiple names of the same person. Now they've changed it. I think you put like Roman numerals after your name or something like that. But I couldn't be... Bill Fisher. So I was playing around with variations of my name, William, Billy, you know, play, just goofing around with my name. And I didn't like any of them because they didn't ever really, none of them really fit my, my personality. And I was known through playing football as Bill Fisher. So I wanted in my head, I wanted to be Bill Fisher. And I was up for this Budweiser commercial and I would, I would call the SAG office multiple times 
going through this, throwing different variations of my name to them. And, and the same woman answered the phone every time out in L.A. And she would say, no, honey, no, there's one of those. Sorry. I'd be like, all right, I'll call you back. And I hung up. So I'm up for this Budweiser commercial. And I'm in the house, and my ex-wife's best friend is in the house with me who grew up on the west side of Cherry Hill. And I'm just, like, ranting and raving. Like, I can't believe I can't be built for this. This is ridiculous. You know, this guy's like, 100 years old. How's he still paying his dues? Like, this is insane. And she knew the story. She goes, well, why don't you call yourself Stinky Fisher? And I said, oh, Kelly, you're so funny. You're so... I said, you know what? If I book this Budweiser commercial... I'm changing my name to Stinkfisher because Stinkfisher is a man's name. How do you like that? She goes, all right, fine, do it. I said, bet on. Two days later, I get the phone call from my agent. I booked the Budweiser commercial. I'm like, oh, man, here we go. So I called the SAG office, and the same woman answers the phone. And I said, hey, how you doing? It's Bill Fisher. She goes, oh, hey, how are you? I said, okay, I got one for you. She goes, all right, lay it on me. I said, stink. She goes, you're good. Yeah, That was it. Yeah, it's not like there's tons of, hey, a stink yeah. cruise. That was it. It was like one and done. She's like, you're right. That's it. So I, I put Stink Fisher on the map, and uh, I've been that ever since. And, and it actually really works very well for me because you're right. The only stink out there. And you remember it. And that's the thing. You know, that's also comes to branding. You know, you remember Stink Fisher. Like, everyone calls me Coop. I mean, there's, you know, Steve Cooper, you know, but people, a lot of people think that my first name is Cooper because I, everyone calls me Cooper. And people will say to me, you know, do you mind if we call you? I go, no, it's because it, it's, it's subconsciously, it's branding because people say, oh, there's Coop. Or, hey, do you know Cooper? Instead of saying, do you right. know Steve, there's a thousand Steves, there's a thousand Wilms. Even, even Fisher, you know, Fisher's a common name, just like. Very common you know, name. Yep. So it's perfect for you. So. You have a really interesting story, a really interesting life. So you started off, your goal was football when you were younger, right? 100%. So tell me about what happened. I know you ended up playing in the CFL and all that, but what, how was your football career? How did, how did, how did your football career escalate? Because you went to East, yeah. and I think the only person, you know, years ago, Pete Kugler came out of East. He was a lineman. For he the was Niners. a line, defensive lineman, yeah. Stanley Clayton played for the Falcons. He was a two years younger than me. But there were the, and, and Foley. Did you play with Foley? I played with Foley. In fact, Glenn and I went to the Jets together. We, we okay. so, uh, drove up to camp together. Yeah. So tell me the whole story about, you know, because I know you went to, you were a Golden Gopher and then you went to Rowan, but tell me about your whole football background because it's funny that from football, you wanted to act and you owned a restaurant. It, it fascinates me. So tell me about the football. Well, I, if you knew... If you know my family's story, then it's no surprise that I'm not leading a marching band. I mean, honestly, my family was the arts. My dad was an English teacher by day and a football coach by night and a uh, musical director and a screenwriter and a playwright and a novelist. My dad wore a million hats. So I observed my dad growing up and just, you know, soaked it all in. And I just was like, if he can do it. Maybe I have that in me as well. So I want to touch everything that I can touch. And, and if I'm good at it, I'm going to run with it. So football for me, it was just a, a natural design for me. I, I just, I'm built for it. Uh, my knees tell you different now. But I was just, I was that kid. I was just, I was just a good athlete. I was aggressive on the field. Uh, I played angry. And, you know, I played to win and uh, I rose through the ranks of, you know, all the stuff in high school, you know, all South Jersey, all state um, made like Bally's 
third team All American in in high school. I was what a position defensive line, offensive line in high school. Um, but I got all my accolades as a defensive lineman, and I went. Um, I became a blue chipper, and I was you know pursued by every school in the nation basically, except for like Ivy League. It was pretty funny. Like I remember Stanford was was really interested in me. And uh, John Elway wrote me a letter because his dad was the coach at the time. And he was like, you know, my dad's a great coach. He's, you know, he's a father figure, but he, he's, he's knowledgeable about life. And he said, and I'm like, I'm like, Dad, I got a letter from John Elway. This is pretty cool. <laughs> Which is really funny because as an actor, I worked with Elway in a commercial at one point. And I told him about the letter. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah. I remember my dad used to do that stuff. And um, he, used to, he used to get him to write the letters. It was pretty funny. But um, so – I was a blue chip coming out of high school, and I wanted to go Big Ten. I wanted to play for Michigan. That was my – since I was a kid, I just wanted to play for – I wanted to be a Wolverine. And they wooed me heavily. That Michigan was all over me, and I was – that was the school I was going to. There was no question about it. But I also – you know, my head coach, Bo Wood, and my dad were, you know, in my ear, and they are like, you know, you need to visit other schools, and you need to really see what's out there, and you need to, you know – just be respectful of the whole process. I was absolutely. So I visited Boston College. I visited uh, Southern Cal, visited Rutgers, and visited Minnesota. And I'm I'm committing to, to Michigan. So I waiting. I'm, I'm at World Gym in Glendora, working out, and Shem Beckler is flying in from Michigan to Philly to come have dinner at my house with my parents. And this is the night that they're gonna you know offer me the scholarship and. I'm off and running. Schembechler gets a heart attack on the tarmac. And Cam Cameron, who rose through the ranks, I think Cam's in the NFL now, but might still be in there. I don't know if he retired yet or not. Um, called my dad, told him what happened. I get a phone call at the gym, and this is before cell phones and everything. So I just, I'm working out, and I hear, Fisher, you got a phone call. And I'm like, okay. My dad's like, Coach Schembechler had a heart attack on the tarmac. They're not coming. I'm like, why? Are you kidding me? So that was kind of like the pre- – and the, the reason I'm, I'm prefacing this is because that was kind of the precursor to my college career. Really wanted to go to Michigan. So I still wanted to play Big Ten ball. And from that point forward, when, when Coach had a heart attack, they just stopped recruiting me. I don't know if it was like a bad omen. I don't know. I mean, I was one of the top five defensive linemen coming out of high school that year. So it wasn't like a talent thing. My grades were good, somewhat good. Um, it was just kind of like a weird dynamic that happened, and they just stopped recruiting me. So I visited Minnesota, and I loved USC, but USC was too far. Boston College was too tight and crammed into the city. I just wasn't all about that city living style. And Southern Cal, I was kind of like leaning towards Southern Cal, and my dad was like, look, I'm a school teacher. Like, I'm not flying you home three, four times a year. Like, if you're out there, you're out there. And I was kind of like, I had a girlfriend that went to Tulane. And I was kind of like, I don't know if I want to be that far away, you know. So uh, Minnesota seemed like a really good visit. I I loved the guys out there. It was cold, but I didn't mind playing in the cold. I didn't mind practicing in the cold. I kind of liked playing in the cold. So I I, I had a really good visit, so I went to Minnesota. And I'm out there as a set. I turned 18 on July 30th. So we left for Minnesota driving for my freshman year two weeks after my 18th birthday. The freshman year, like, 
month after that drive, we did our weightlifting testing. I was the third strongest guy on the team. Natural. Never touched steroids in my life. Never went anywhere near any any enhancement drugs whatsoever. Just my dad was a power lifter, and I just had that in me. And from that moment forward, it was kind of like, Fisher, just tell us what you're on, and we'll help you get off it. And I'm like, guys, I'm not on anything. Like, this is me. Like, I'm just a – I was benching 400 pounds when I was 16 years old. Like, I don't know what to tell you. So I never rose in the ranks at Minnesota to the point where I felt like I was going to get playing time. And Minnesota did this really weird thing. They didn't redshirt you freshman year. They redshirted you your sophomore year. So freshman year, I'm active, and I'm practicing, and I'm, I'm making plays. We had this, like, JV squad, and we would play the Division three colleges in the area just to keep us busy. I had this one game, Steve. I, I went ballistic on this team. They were like St. Augusta of, of Minneapolis or something. I don't even remember what they were. Division three school. I had like four sacks. I blocked the punt. I, I, got a, I, I got in the backfield so quickly that I literally took the handoff from the quarterback. I remember this. This is crazy because they sent the tape to my dad. I took the, the handoff from the quarterback and took off down the field. I tripped. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't make it in the zone. But my point being is that I was doing everything right, and I wasn't getting playing time. And their whole course of action was they were going to redshirt the following year. So there was no point in putting me on the field. So I got, like, really frustrated because in my head, I wanted to play, and I felt like this is my gateway to the NFL. So the more noise that I can make in the Big Ten, you know, the – better chance I have of getting in the NFL. And then I hurt my back, and I lost my entire sophomore season. Even though I was redshirted, I lost my entire sophomore season. I couldn't walk. I couldn't put my pants on. Couldn't tie my shoes. I herniated three discs in my lower in my lower back, in my lumbar. Flew home, went to uh, Penn, and saw Bartolozzi over there, and they were looking at my MRIs, and they're looking at my scans and everything. They're like, find another sport. You'll never play football again. And I was like, the hell with that. So we went to West Point, met with a doctor up at West Point. He created some new system, a new technique to get your lumbar back in shape. I did that all year. did it with my roommate at Minnesota in the dorm room, like in between classes and at nighttime and stuff like that. Got the strength back in my lower back, fixed myself, get back on the field the following year, and they moved me to offense. They're like, you're, you're like Mike Webster. You, you can be like the prolific center in the Big Ten. Like, you you are built for it. And I love the Steelers. I know who Webster was. And I was just like, I'm a defensive lineman mentality. Like, I just want to kill. I, just, I remember saying this. I want to kill people. So, like, you can kill people on the other side of the ball. You can pancake all day long. I'm like, I want to sack the quarterback. I want the glory, you know. Young. Young kid. And, you know, at this point, I was like, my dad was so knowledgeable. My dad was my, my best friend. But I, I like, shielded myself and shut everyone off from me because I knew what was best for me so I got really frustrated and I wound up leaving Minnesota um, a little too late I had made calls my dad had made calls USC was saying come out to us like we'll still give you a scholarship Boston College was saying get on a plane right now we'll give you a scholarship and I hesitated because I got like nervous it's like you know this is where I committed to this is where I want to be I have friends here I love these guys still friends with all those guys at Minnesota um so I really didn't – I was very unsure of myself. I'm a kid making adult decisions, you know. And I wound up leaving too late. And the only school that would give me a scholarship was Towson State, which was 1AA. I went to Towson State. And I, you know, had a 
meeting with the coach, and I, he said, "What are your goals? What do you, what, you know, what do you, what do you want to gain here?" I said, "Well, I want to get my degree." I said, "But I also, I want to play pro ball. Like that's my goal is to get to the NFL." And he said, "You do everything right, and you know they they scout us. They come through here." He's like, "You know, we're we're not a huge program." He's like, "But you know, you make noise, and you know you'll be seen." I said, "Okay." So I played there. I started on the D line, had a really good season. Um, we were horrible. I think we were two and nine. It was like just a bit, but I was making a lot of noise on the field, and I was planning on going back, but the <laughs> in the winter break, I'm at a friend's house in Cherry Hill, and we're having a Christmas party. Like we're all just hanging out. All the, all the guys are back from college and stuff like that, and I went to school with um, Coach Ginsburg from Eastern. I went to school with his son, Andy, at Towson. Andy was part of the athletic department. He, like, helped out with the athletic department and just bounced around with the football team and stuff like that. So we're hanging out and we're having a couple beers and we're laughing and stuff like that. And Andy comes up to me and he says, hey, you know, the Browns are interested in you. I said, what are you talking about? He said, the Cleveland Browns came in and they wanted tape on you and they left information for you to fill out, like questionnaires and stuff. And they want... They want more information on you. They're really interested in you. And he's like, I'm not going to mention names. He's like, but the head coach pretty much pushed it under the under the desk blotter and said, like, you know, he's not going anywhere type thing. And kind of, like, kept it from me. So I got, like, really disenchanted with the whole situation because when he told me that at this party, I was like, what? I said, are you kidding me? Like, I told this coach everything that I wanted out of this program, and, and that situation starts to happen. And you're going to shield that from me and not let me be part of that process? Like, that just really blew me, blew my head, like, in a whole other orbit. And, and I just was done. I was done with college football. I was pretty much like, I'm, I'm, I'm out. I don't want any more part, part of this. I'm just going to leave school. I'm going to go home and figure out my life. So I left Towson, um, which my parents were not very happy about. And I was just working odd jobs. I was going to Camden County. And, you know, got my AA degree in one semester there. And, you know, just had like a downward spiral. It was really, it was dis disappointing considering, you know, how much hope and glory right. I had in the beginning. It just, it just, I, I just made bad decisions. I waited too long for other decisions. And, you know, probably the best decision for me would have been to stay at Minnesota and work with the O-line coach. It was a great O-line coach. And um, Brian Williams came out of our program and went with the Giants. And Brian was a center with the Giants for a lot of years. And I kind of learned a lot. And yeah, I, but you know what it is is when you're young and you said, you know, you had the idea, you know, we want the glory when we're young. We're looking back, you sit there and you go, well, I, I'm a defensive lineman. I want sacks, you know, and right. and you don't think, I mean, and the, the funny thing is 17, 18, 19, 20, you shouldn't have to make those decisions. You know what I mean? It's something that we don't, we don't sit there and, think like this can affect our future because then when I was in college, you're thinking of where is the party or where is this? Right, and it's right, crazy. Right. So you, you were disenfranchised. So, so what do you do after Camden County? So Camden County, um, happens. I get my AA and, um, my associate of arts degree and I'm just looking, you know, where am I going to get my four year degree from? And I'm looking for work. And I was like bouncing around with work and stuff like that. Like I think I was bouncing and doing landscaping and all kinds of goofy stuff. And, my dad yells down to me. I lived in the in the downstairs part of the house. And my dad yells down to me. He goes, you got a phone call. I'm like, okay. 
I get on the phone and I go, hello. And he's like, Billy. I'm like, yeah. He's like, John Bunning. I'm like, John, but like the John Bunning, the right. linebacker for the Eagles, John Bunning. And he's like, yeah. He's like, you know, I coach at Rowan. I'm the head coach at Rowan. And I said, oh, I said, I had no idea. And I like, honestly, I didn't even know what Rome was. I was like, he's like Glassboro State. I'm like, oh, okay, okay, all right. He's like, um, I want you to come play for me. I hear you're sitting on your ass. You're not doing anything. Um, you got a lot of talent. He's like, come play for me. And I said, Coach, honestly, I said, listen, I love you. I said, I respect the hell out of you. And I said, I would, you know, love to play ball for you. I said, but I'm done. I said, I'm just done. The whole college experience, it's just, it's just, it just wiped me out. He said, listen. What do you want? I said, I, w- I want to play in the NFL. Like, I said, I'm, I'm pissed. Like, I, I, I'm good, and I can get there. And he goes, well, I'll tell you what. He's like, come down here and play for me. He's like, there's no cameras. There's no pressure. I said, I'm not worried about the cameras or pressure. He's like, no, but my point is, it's just football. You come down and play for me, and I'll take care of you. He's like, you do everything right. You, you have the, the season that you need to have. He's like, I'm obviously connected. You do that, we'll get you where you need to be. And I was like, I'll think about it. He said, I'm having some beers and I'm watching the Eagles play Dallas on Monday night down at the Eagles Nest. He's like, Ron's place, Jaworski's place. He's like, come meet me for, for a beer. I said, okay, fine. I was I was 21 at this point. Right. Um, might as well have been 30 considering my college career. So I went and met and it, it was crazy. Like Carmichael was there, Wilbert Montgomery, like all the guys were there. Ber- Bergie was there. And he's like, guys, Tell this kid to come play for me at Rowan. And they were all, I mean, these are my my heroes. I mean, I'm standing in front of my heroes, and I was like, holy shit, man, this is incredible. You got to go play for coach. I said, all right. I said, I'm on. So I, I did everything I had, enrolled. I had like a tremendous amount of credits that I was putting in there because of all the school that I had been through. And um, I'm heading into camp. Like camp was like a week away. And so this is during the football season. So I had six months before camp started, you know, and uh, Coach Bunning calls me. John calls me and he says, listen, I got some news for you. I said, okay. He goes, I took a linebacker coach job with the Kansas City Chiefs. And I was like, oh, coach. And he goes, no, no, no. You got a man on the inside now. He's like, Casey Keeler's taking over. He's a great guy. He knows what he's doing. He knows all about you. I'll introduce you to him. Like, So I was like, okay, this is cool. So I went. Went to Rowan, and we had a freaking blast. I mean, we went to the Stag Bowl, and it was the first year that Rowan had ever been to the Stag Bowl, the Division Three championship. And um, we we had a great season. We lost 36-24 to Mountain Union, which is, uh, what's his name's uh, school? Sirianni? Sirianni School. And uh, we... Uh, we just we had a phenomenal run, and I I had a great season. Um, I made All American. I uh, I had an interception and two sacks in the national championship game. Had a lot of interest in me um, after the game because Ballard, the uh, quarterback from Mountain Union, and I got into a fight the night before. Um, Rocky Blyer was giving a speech to the teams, and uh, another Steelers connection. And we went up on stage, to, you know, they, to meet him afterwards. And Bauer was on the stage and said something to me in passing. And I turned to him and I said, what did you say? And he was trying to get my goat, you know. And, and I didn't do anything about it on stage. I just 
shook Rocky Plyer's hand. I walked off. But when I got on the, the team bus to go back to the hotel, I was livid. And I'm like, I'm going to freaking kill this kid tomorrow. I'm going to kill him. And I wound up, I got, I, I intercepted him. I sacked him twice. They beat us. But, you know, we we, we put a, a good show on. We did a good job. They were a tough team. They were a really good team. So from there, okay, so you 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 have a great season. Yeah. Okay, now what's your path to the pros now? Because this is all part of your crazy story. So you get done. Now, I got done. But you weren't drafted? I wasn't drafted. No, I, um. I made I made a lot of noise for myself, and that national championship game I think really helped me. And I also was uh, it was funny because after the game, the Ballard reference is just I think part of the story, in the sense that Sports Illustrated comes up to me after after the game. I'm dressed, you know, and I'm walking to the team bus, and reporter comes up to me and he says like so and so Sports Illustrated. I'm like, oh yeah, how you doing? He says, tell us what happened between you and Ballard Friday night. And I said, I, you know, I said, I really don't want to talk about it. I said, it's not of importance. And he goes, hey, kid, you want to get in Sports Illustrated? I said, yeah. He goes, tell me what happened with Ballard on Friday night. I said, oh, well, let me tell you what happened with Ballard on Friday night. So I had an article in Sports Illustrated, um, you know, out of a D3 school, and I'm a D lineman. So, like, I, got, I made some noise, which is really cool. And I think, you know, looking back on it, it's impressive considering that, like, I wasn't the star of the game. I didn't throw for 300 yards, 400 yards. I'd score five touchdowns or whatever. Um, so I think that teams took notice. So from that point, um, Casey Keeler, head coach, was instrumental in just pulling strings and trying to get teams to come in and work me out. And um, I, I think that. I had three or four teams that were interested in me. I, I had the Jets, the Eagles, um, the Redskins, and Dallas, I, I think. Or maybe Denver. It might have been Denver at first. And the Eagles worked me out. The Jets worked me out. Redskins worked me out. And Denver, like, I fell off by the wayside. And I ran, like, a 47. 40 at the time. I was 300 pounds. I benched, um, you know, whatever the 225, you know, a thousand times, like whatever the benchmark was. And I remember the Jets uh, coach that came to work me out, the scout that worked me out after the workout. He's like, I got to tell you, he's like, I wasn't expecting much when I came here. He's like, this is pretty damn impressive. And I was like, yeah, so I, you know, I take care of myself. I said, I work really hard. Um, he said, do you understand that your shuttle time, shuttles the two, the three cones, one in the middle, you start in the middle in a three-point stance, and you go laterally to your left and hit the cone five yards away. You run 10 yards to the next cone, you touch it, and then you run back through the line. And he said, do you understand your shuttle time is as fast as running backs? I said, I'm quick, man. And he goes, yeah, okay. So I wasn't cocky. I was, I was confident. You know, I was never – cocky I never, I never used that air of arrogance it was just more of like give me a shot to play and i'll prove it to you so draft comes and goes um it was 93 i think 93 or 94 94 and the draft comes comes and goes and i don't get drafted it's only seven rounds i think if there were 13 rounds i probably would have maybe gone in a late late round might have been the last pick and got the corvette who the hell knows but it was only seven rounds at the time. And when Glenn went in the, I think Glenn was seven, Glenn Foley was seventh round, sixth round. He was late. 
So when I saw that he went that late, because he's a tremendous athlete, absolutely tremendous, triple sport, basketball, baseball, football. And when I saw he went that late, I was like, oh, there's no hope. I'm, there's no way I'm getting drafted. So ESPN signs off. They're like, that's it for the draft in 1994, blah, 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 blah. Bang, my phone rings. Like, seconds later. And my dad yells downstairs, pick up the phone. I pick up the phone. It's a coach from the New York Jets. And he's like, we want to offer you a free agency contract with the Jets. And I said, okay, coach. I said, I really appreciate the offer. I said, I'd like to see what else comes in. And he goes, hey. You're coming out of a D3 school. I'm offering you a free agency right. contract. Don't sit on this too long. I said, no, no, no I, I won't, I won't. And then the Eagles called like 20 minutes later, and those were the two offers I got, were the Eagles and the Jets. And I went with the Jets because it was the first phone call that I got. They, I mean, the phone rang the second ESPN went off the air, which meant to me that I was in their head and that they were really liking me. And I also looked at the defensive line situation at both teams Eagles were pretty deep. Jets were kind of like all over the place. And I felt like I had a real good shot at making the squad with the Jets, so I signed with the Jets. And I went into camp with the Jets. Glenn and I drove up together, which was really cool because we slept over each other's houses. We grew up together. We played Pop Warner together. Literally, for eight years, we played Pop Warner together. Went to different middle schools, and then we show back up at East, and we're, you know, he's my quarterback, and I'm his offensive lineman and defensive lineman. And we both go to different colleges. We have different paths. Glenn goes to Boston College and rips it up. And, you know, I, I go in this downward spiral. And we both find our way to the New York Jets, you know, years later. I just thought it was like a really cool story. Um, and I, we had camp. And we had the same thing. like tri, You know, triple days. You know, uh, we're doing three three workouts a day. Um, it was really funny. At some point, I had to – we have the big team meeting. We're at Hofstra, and um, Pete was our, our coach at, at the time, and uh, he's running the meeting, and, and all the rookies have to get up and sing their fight song. And I'm, like, in the back of the room. All the rookies are in the back of the room. And, you know, all these different guys get up and sing their fight song. Glenn gets up, he sings Boston College fight song, and then comes to me, right? Now, I was at Rowan for one year. I could still sing the Minnesota fight song. But Rowan, like, it gets to me, and it, this was great. I stand up. I'm, I'm, I have 100 players in front of me, all pro athletes. I mean, Ronnie Lott was on the team, Boomer Sias. You know what I mean? Like, they, these are, like, right. pro guys, man, like guys that I looked up to, you know, watching and, and stuff. And uh, Pete Carroll's like, um, I go, I stand up. I go, Bill Fisher, uh, defensive line, Rowan University. Everybody just turns around and looks at me. <laughs> and I'm just standing there, and I go, Coach, um, we, don't, we don't have a fight song. <laughs> I was thinking and, that because I, I went to Stockton. We didn't even have a right. football team. But there's no song. There's, there's, you know, me and my wife were talking about that the other day, about the songs. Like, you know, as you go through, like, the college, like Notre Dame, you know, that, that – and then we we're talking about pro football, yeah. how like the Eagles, we have a great chant, but no one else has a good chant. Like people will go, you know, Cowboy, you know, no one has that. But right. I mean, it's so funny because you're right. Like Stockton, right. we we didn't have a song. There might be one. And my my 21-year-old is a junior at Rowan right now, and he might know the, the fight song, but I certainly don't. And it was, it was just a great moment in time. I mean, it was literally like everyone just froze and just looked at me and the room just bur- burst out laughing. 
And uh, I had a I had a really good camp. I had a, I had a, a good camp. I after our third practice on this one set day, they did the weight testing, just to see your endurance and all that stuff. And I don't know if I still have it, but at the time I had the rookie record for defensive line. I benched 275 31 times after our third practice that day. And I mean, I was just, I was a beast when it came to the weights. Like I, there was, you know, and adrenaline was kicked in. I'm here playing pro ball. I remember I went in the bathroom with my helmet on, just looked in the mirror and I was like, holy shit, man. Like I, I made it like, this is crazy. So what happened? Um, we left camp and then that was mini camp. And then we, um, broke and then we were going to go assemble, you know, in July for regular camp. And, um, I got a phone call from the Jets and they, you know, I'd signed my contract. I'm, the, I'm a member of the New York Jets for this moment in time. And they said, look, we, uh, we're going to, we're going to put you on waivers. Like we, um, got these two guys from Minnesota, uh, Miami, two veteran defensive linemen that became available. And we need the immediate help on the D line and, and, you know, you're low man on the totem pole. And it was like crazy because I really felt like I didn't even have a chance to prove myself yet, you know, but here I am, I'm a D three guy and I get it. Like, if you look at the numbers, it's all a numbers game. These guys were two vets coming out of Miami and you know, they have field time, they've got the experience and I'm coming off of a D three school. And even though I, you know, my numbers are impressive and I did whatever I did when I was in camp and all that stuff, it's still like, who the hell's that guy compared to these guys? So I, I got cut and my agent immediately called the Eagles because Eagles had offered me uh, a contract as well. And their response was, he didn't want to come here before. Why does he want to come here now? And I was like, really? I thought this was a business. I didn't think that this was like a high school, you know, Right. Spite, yeah. It's spite like, situation. oh, wait a second. You didn't come to my party. So I was, I was like really bummed out because um, I felt like that was not the response that should have been. It should have been like, well, if we have room for him, you know, maybe we'll give him a shot. Maybe we'll work him out again type thing. Because at this time, and not to badmouth anybody, but like when you look at who they had on the line at that time, I mean, they had like Mike Mamula came out of BC and he was supposed to be like this huge, you know, just talent. And I remember watching Mamula play and I'm just like, my God, this guy cannot cut back he runs past the quarterback every time quick off the line but had no lateral movement whatsoever and i was just like furious i was like put me on the field man and i'll show you what i could do there but i just never got the opportunity um i went with a new agent at some point worked out for dallas which made me sick to my stomach right <laughs> and that's a fun tie-in when we get to my acting career because with invincible we actually had to shoot in dallas stadium um but you know, I worked out for Dallas like nine times with Garrett, Garrett's dad. Um, he was the scout in the area for, for the Cowboys. And he loved me and worked me out constantly. And they kept calling my agent. They're like, we're bringing him in. We're bringing him in. So I had my bags packed no less than eight times. Like, tell my parents, like, I'm getting signed by Dallas. Like, here we go. And... Every single time something else happened. There was like a, a wide receiver went down in camp, linebacker went down in camp, running back went down, and they would have to bring someone else in. And they kept putting me on hold and putting me on hold. So finally, I just I got an opportunity to play uh, arena ball. It was just keeping me active. So I went down and played for the Tampa Bay Storm. I, pay, I played um, with, uh, oh, what the hell is Jason's last name? He was the head coach of the Redskins for a while. Oh, uh, Gruden. Gruden, Jay. I played with Jay. Um, 
<laughs> John's brother. And I was his center, and I, you know, I played D-line, O-line, and um, they really liked me down there, too. Like, there was n- nothing going on down there. Tampa Bay was stacked. Um, I think Warren Sapp was there at that point and stuff like that, and they just weren't looking for any like, D-linemen at the time. And I played there, and then I, um, I came home, and I went to uh, the Connecticut Coyotes the next year with Kuharik, Larry Kuharik, and then got traded to Tampa Bay again. I was back in Tampa Bay. And then I got a call from the CFL from the Montreal Alouettes, and the Alouettes were interested in me. So I drove up to Montreal, and I was with Montreal. This is all like going over the course of a couple of years, kind of blurring the lines. And then uh, I finished out the season with the, with the Alouettes, and they offered me a two-year contract extension. They were like, we'd like you to you know, come back for two years. We'll give you a two-year contract. And I was married at the time. We didn't have kids, but I was married. And I said, i got to go home and talk to my wife about this. And they were like, all right, well, let us know. And I went home. And I'm talking to my wife. It was right around Halloween. And I'm talking to my wife. And I said, like, they they want to sign me to a two-year contract. I said, this could lead to the NFL. And, you know, I, it's all I want to do is get back there. I'm like, you know, we can make good money. I can do what I love, you know. She's like, I'm not living in Montreal. I just do. I have no interest in living in Montreal. She's like, it's a beautiful city. It's expensive. It's far away from our parents. And, you know, I just, I don't see the point. You know, how much are you getting paid? I was like, it's like a teacher salary, like $40,000 a year maybe. And she's like, is it worth, like, we're, we're going to blow through that money by living there. I'm like, so I'm like kind of on the fence. Like not, not anything with relationship, not thinking like I need to, you know, abandon the relationship to pursue my dreams. Just kind of like, ugh, what do I do here? And I get a phone call from a friend of mine in high school who says, Fish, do you remember Alicia? I'm like, yeah. I said, we used to hang out together and party together and stuff. He goes, she's doing casting for Mike Lemon over in Philadelphia. I'm like, okay. Like, I have no idea who Mike Lemon is. She's like, she needs a football player for a commercial. I was going to do it, but I have to take mom to the doctor. Do you want to do you want to do it? And I was like, yeah, sure, man. Like, I said, I'll help her out. Like, I don't care. I've always been interested in that world because my dad was so, you know, embedded in it. I mean, he, he directed all the musicals at Cherry Hill West. He had books published. He was a screenwriter. He had, he had um, auditioned a, a musical for Mel Brooks on Broadway, like literally brought his musical to Mel Brooks on Broadway and auditioned it for him. Like my dad was, I wouldn't say a heavy hitter, but like he was in it. So I saw all this all the time and I was like, I really, I enjoy this. Like I would love to be a part of this, maybe past my football career, love to get into acting and writing and, and all that stuff because it just, it, it fascinates me how it's just like a flick of a switch, you know? And, um, we, we, I, I go to this commercial and it was, I, I'm Jewish and, I, and it's Rosh Hashanah and I was supposed to be at my grandmother's house in Philadelphia right. and I felt really guilty by saying like, yeah, I can do it. And then not realizing it was Rosh Hashanah. So I call my grandmother and I'm like, Graham, I have an opportunity tonight to shoot a commercial but I'm going to miss dinner. And she goes, you do whatever you love. Whatever you love. We'll be all right. We'll save you food. I said, are you sure? She goes, I'm absolutely sure. Do what, do what you love. And I did this commercial. I had no, I had no idea what I was getting into. No idea. I, I walk in. We're, we're shooting at the stadium, right? <clears throat> Pardon me. We're shooting at the stadium. We're in the locker room. 
and I'm like looking around. I'm just like, this is all new to me. The lights and the, you know, the stands and how do I fill out the voucher? Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> the bounce shields and, and you know, everything. And I'm just like, what is going on? Like, this is crazy. And I asked one of the guys, I probably a grip or, or you know, a PA or somebody. I was like, how long are we going to be here? He's like, man, you don't ask that question. I'm like, oh, okay. All right. Whatever. So we were there for like eight hours shooting this thing with Rodney Pete. It was fun. It was goofy. But I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Had a blast. Absolute blast. I'm like, what? This is really cool. So I come home and I tell my wife, I'm like, I had a blast. Like, I think I want to go into acting. And she goes, oh, for God's sakes. Like, really, man? Like, you're, you go from being like this defunct football player to now you're going to go into acting. And I'm like, I, I loved it. I thought it was great. Like, I, I just had a blast. So I go to um, my parents' house. My parents had a fax machine. This is back. This is how old this is. And I f- write a letter and I fax it to Alicia at Mike Lemon Casting. I'm like, Alicia, I had such a great time on set. Everybody was so nice. Um, I had a blast. If you ever need me for anything else and want to put my hat in the ring, please do so. I would love to do this again. And that was Bill. I mean, that wasn't stink at the time. I was just like, you know, love you, Bill. So she calls me back. She goes, oh, my God, I've never got a thank you note from any actor ever. And she's like, that was the sweetest thing. And she's like, and yeah, she's like, if something pops up, I'll I'll put your name out there. I said, all right, cool. So I go about my business. I'm working. What I, happened with the, you just decided against the I Alouettes? I just told the Alouettes. I, I just said, it's it's not going to work out. So my, my wife and I. Were, were you depressed, though? I mean, what, 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 did you, what was your mind thought when you said, you know, I, I can't, I'm not going to do this? Um, I wouldn't say depression. I would say lack of satisfaction. Uh, I don't get depressed. I, 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 I'm always in attack mode. So I look at life as opportunities. I look at doors that open, not close. So for me, it was like, okay, this is a chapter that is just going to silently go away. I had the quietest retirement in you know pro football history. I don't even know if I could consider myself a pro at that point. But you know, it, to me, it was disappointing, and and I felt like this is not the way I wanted my pro football career to go. But at the same time, I felt like, okay, I'm saving my body a lot of wear and tear. I really did think this. And I, I also, um, you know, my wife and I are talking about starting a family at some point. Give me the opportunity to do that. And who knows what else, what else life will throw at me. Like, I'm, I'm not a half empty. I'm a half full type of guy. So to me, I was walking away from something that gave me a lot of joy, but also a lot of frustration. And disappointing, yes. Frustrating, yes. Depressed? No, not depressed. Um, never really had like a woe is me moment. I just felt like, you know, it's, it's kind of like show business. It's, it's a really hard racket to get into. And even when you're in it, it's really hard to stay in it. I mean, I don't know what the average lifespan of an NFL player is now, but I remember back when I was playing, it was like 2.3 years. Right. You know, it's really hard to find longevity in that career base. Partly because of injuries a lot to do with new talent rising up and you just you know you're losing your step you lose a a split second of time in in your abilities and that's that could be the kicker to you know you're done because if someone can do it just that much faster you're done so i i never really looked at it as a uh what was me situation as much as a man i i Maybe save myself like a lot of wear and tear on my body. And you know? and the door opens. Today acting. So the you acting know, opens. Yeah. So so Alicia Alicia gets back to you after you thank her. And does she have a role for you? 
Uh, not so much roles. It was just kind of opportunities. It was like, look, this is going on. That's going on. Um, are you interested? I said, yeah. I said, I'm interested in anything. Just throw anything at me. And I was, I think I was managing clubs at the time. I think I was managing strip clubs, believe it or not. Um, which was a really cool thing. Like that was a very cool experience because it gave me a lot of creativity with my writing. Um, started writing a series about managing a strip club and, uh, it just, and they're people. They're totally, I've never been into that world as a, as a patron, I, but as a, an employee, it was very interesting. Well, funny, very funny story about strip clubs. Um, I, for my other podcast, Cooper talk, I interviewed Phil Collin from Def Leppard. Yeah. And when they had put their album out, the, the third one with pour some sugar on me, right, right. they spent a lot of money. It, it wasn't getting airplay, but then some strip clubs in Florida started playing that song, pour some sugar on me. And then all the strip clubs in Florida did. And then the radio started playing it and it became a huge hit. And it all came from a strip club. That's it. And uh, it's all, that's how pop culture, that's how things, the tipping point amazing. works. It's just something as crazy as a dancer picked it. I like Def Leppard. So you work at strip clubs, you're getting opportunities. Now, I want to find out though, the whole thing I want to find out is you're doing the acting, you're doing strip clubs. How did you end up opening a, a restaurant in college? Uh, well, Where this, does that come Well, in? this is crazy. So so we referenced John Elway a little right. bit back. So we'll get to that in one second. So so Alicia's throwing me all, these, all this thing and she's like, dude, you're ripping it up. She's like, you're beating people out for roles that have like Shakespearean training. And that's to me not so much talent. I mean, I... Th- do I have do I have talent? Maybe. Do other actors have talent? Yes, absolutely. It's right place, right time, and it's also new face, and it's a different angle, different take on something. So I think I was just bringing a fresh perspective to get these roles. I don't think it was necessarily like this guy's blowing us away. This is like the next Paul Newman. No, I don't think it was anything like that. I think it was just a lot of timing and luck and just you know perseverance because you have to stick it out and. I was getting a lot of work, and a buddy of mine was a real big dude, played at Rowan, uh, JP. He was doing modeling and a little bit of acting up in New York, and there was a, an agency up there. And he brought me up there. He's like, you got to be – he's like, we ran into each other. And he's like, I have no idea. I had no idea you were acting. I'm like, yeah. I said, yeah, I'm doing this bit stuff in Philly. You know, I'm getting some decent stuff, nothing amazing. He's like, we well, got to come up to New York and meet this guy. Like, you know – he has this this agency and like I'm getting like all kinds of crazy work. So I went up and met this guy in New York and he loved me and he was like, oh, I'm definitely going to get you work. So long story short, we'll cut to the chase. At some point in time, I booked this Prevacid commercial as a football player. And I was just talking about this with my buddy the other day because he was like, dude, you could use a Prevacid commercial right now, couldn't you? I'm like, you're damn right. I made... Six figures plus on that commercial. This is back when they paid you for the regions. So, you know, you had eight regions in the country. And if the commercial was playing in eight regions and it was on loop all the time, you were making bank. And it was when commercials were union. So many commercials are non-union now. It's a joke. Tons are non-union and tons are payouts. They're buyouts. Right. So you basically, they'll hire you for 1500 bucks or 2000 bucks, And then you never see another penny. So it's not even like. If you need it and you can get it, it's great work, but it's not the way it used to be. It used to be very lucrative. So I do this premise of commercial with Elway, and it's basically me and this other defensive lineman, and John Elway's talking about, you know, Prevacid and, like, this is the best antacid. It's, it doesn't leave that chalky taste in your stomach, which was the whole cut and segue to football because of the chalk lines on the field. 
So at some point, they have me and this other dude hit his body double. You never see my face. You don't, That football player could have been like Lamont from Sanford and Sons. You have no idea who that is. And I made bank on that commercial. And going back to every day, like every day was Christmas. We'd open up the mailbox and there'd be another blue blue check from uh, the company in Chicago. I can't remember the name. Um, the big payroll company in well, Chicago. It used to be a, a Entertainment Partners. Well, that's, another <clears throat> one. that's another one. But this was this was another one. Pardon me. And uh, it was great. Like my wife and I were, this is crazy. This is crazy. So her backstory is that she went to um, Johnson & Wales in Rhode Island and always wanted to own a B&B, bed and breakfast. And... I was totally get like in love, uh, you know, great woman, and I was like, one hundred percent, I'm behind you on that. Like, if you want to open a B and B, I'd open a B and B with you. I'll do anything. Like, let's do it. So we always played around with this thing. You know, she had a name for it, Le Petit Cochon, Little Pig, and you know, we played around with this this dream of ours of doing it. But we lived in Collingswood, New Jersey, and this is when Collingswood was a blue collar town, and it was destitute. I mean. Empty stores everywhere, storefronts. The houses were not kept the way they are now. Congressman was just really beaten down. And a new mayor came in, Jim Malley, and just started putting energy into the, into the town and just, like, life. And got a great team behind him. And, you know, there was one restaurant in town. I think, I think it was Tortilla Press. And then there was another one that was uh, – it was a Congressman Diner. And it, you had to st- walk up like three steps, go into it, and it was just a strip. Like you couldn't walk past someone. If someone was sitting at the counter, you couldn't walk past them without saying, excuse me, to get to the next stool. And it was this little Collingswood diner, and there was nothing else in town. And so there was nowhere to eat. Collingswood, as you know now, is like a tremendous restaurant town. But Connie and I, my ex-wife, and I would always lament, like, why is there nowhere to eat in this town? Like, why are there no restaurants? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, someone should bring restaurants in. So she goes from her dream of being a and b to writing cookbooks. So she wrote cookbooks. She had, a, she had a food magazine, Bon Vivant, and that led to relationships with every chef and restaurant in the Delaware Valley. We ate everywhere. We knew every chef. Like, I'm talking everybody from Philly to Delaware to South Jersey. And... um we went we went down to New Orleans by the tourism board. They brought us down there so that we could write an article on the New Orleans food scene. And they put us up in a hotel in the French Quarter. And we ate at like 15 restaurants in, in three or four days. It was crazy. So we were connected in the restaurant world. And I have the premise of checks coming in. And we now have a one-and-a-half, two-year-old at the time, Holden, my 21-year-old at Rowan. And we're still lamenting, like, why is there no restaurant in town that you can bring your family? So I'm like, I don't know. So there was this one place that opened. It was called Brianna's. And by day, Coop, it was a hoagie and cheesesteak and pizza place. At night, they would literally bring out checkered tablecloths, throw them over the tables. And all of a sudden, you're in this fine dining experience. So we go out and we bring Holden with us, our our (laughs) one and a half, two-year-old. And... He's probably like one and a half. And we're eating our meal, and he's sitting in his, in, in the high chair, you know, the kid chair. Um, 
and he's babbling, he's throwing crayons, he's throwing his food around, and like we, we're correcting his behavior, but other people are giving us dirty looks, like seriously, dirty looks, beady eyes, just laying into us, you know, non-verbally. We got so uncomfortable, we we're like, you know, let's just let's just grab the food and go home. Let's just take it home. So we're in the car in the municipal lot, behind the the place we were eating at, and we're sitting in the car, and he's in the back babbling. And she's like, that was so frustrating. And I said, you know what? We should just open that restaurant we always talk about. And she said, are you serious? I said, Connie, if we don't do it, someone else eventually is going to do it. And we're going to drive by every day on Haddon Avenue. And we're going to say that could have been us. So she's like, all right, let's do it. So we started putting together a business plan. And we created the pop shop. I mean, it was just one of those things like it came from our desires of what we wanted in town type of restaurant, the type of vibe that we would want to go to with our children and the food that we love, which was comfort food. We just took up, we took comfort food and we just gave it a tweak. We upscaled everything. And um, we just made a deal with ourselves. We're going to keep going with this until somebody says stop. That's it. And when someone says stop, then we'll just let it go. Well, it's a great idea. <laughs> but then now where is your headspace? Because you also have the acting bug. So... I mean, everyone knows, I've been in the restaurant business. Restaurant businesses, it's long-ass weeks. You can't be an actor and a restauranteur in the beginning, at least. <laughs> so what do you, what's going on with you in the beginning? Because you're sitting there, great idea. You start getting busy. But you're, are you at the restaurant a lot, or is your wife running it more? Well, um, so it took a while for us to get to where we needed to be. Um, from what I recall, like my, my career was definitely on the upswing, and... This is going back some years and, uh, you know, all those hits to the head with th thinner helmets didn't help. So I'll try to pull this together correctly. We're, we got approved through bank loan. We put our own money in and then we got approved from TD Bank, <laughs> excuse me, which was commerce at the time. And we pulled together our architect and our design team and everything like that. And we, we started going full tilt. And we found the location, signed the lease. And I remember, like, I'm going on auditions. I'm going up to New York. And I was in the shop prior to opening, like, literally, like, ripping up the floor from the previous tenant and working all this navigation of different contractors and stuff like that, getting things where we needed them to be. And then at some point in time, we were getting closer and closer to opening. And I book Invincible which is a Disney film. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm one of the main guys, but like, it's like, you know, my time, I had a G contract at the time, I think it was, which means like I'm owned for the next four months and we're building this restaurant. And I remember Connie looking at me and going like, what in the world? I could look, you keep doing what you're doing. I'll handle all the contractors and all the build out on my end. Like I'll just, I'll, I'll handle it. I can do it. Because to me, it was like one of those things, like, I watched my dad juggle so many different things over the years, and I just had this confidence, like, you can't throw anything at me that I can't do. Just, I need to find a way to balance it all, and I'll make it happen. So, we're on set over in Northeast Philly at a high school, which was to be Eagles Camp for Invincible. And I literally have my cell phone tucked beneath my thigh pad while we're shooting, and then in between takes, I'm on the phone with, like, plumbers and electricians. And I'm yelling at, you know, 
the, I remember I was down at the plumber one day. I'm like, dude, what, what are you telling me? I'm like, how could it, how could it be like that? Because he was telling me that he's like, you don't understand the floor. He's like, if you rip up this entire floor, you're looking at like a pipe that is completely too small to handle the volume that you're thinking you're going to be able to do. I'm like, so what do we do? He's like, listen, we're going to put everything in on the uh, on the opposite ends, but you don't want to rip this floor up. It's going to be thousands and thousands of dollars, and it's going to delay you a lot of time. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And I remember, like, Wahlberg came up to me at one point. He was like, what are you doing? I said, I'm building a restaurant. He's like, what? I'm like, yeah, I'm building a restaurant. So um, it was really funny because then, then, then it became, like, a, a joke that, like, I was, you know, more into building a restaurant than I was in my, in my role as a supporting lead. And I was like, no, no, no. I said, I'm here. Don't worry. I'm here. But uh, that's what I did. I just I handled both. And um, we had some – it was really weird. We opened on September 20th, and we were still shooting in Philly, but they were doing all interiors with, like um, – they were doing interiors that week, the week that we opened, because I think they were doing all of our meal stuff in the house with Greg Kinnear. And uh, was that Ellen? Was that Ellen? No. Who was that? Kinnear. No, no, Kinnear. Who played his wife? I can't remember who played his wife. But um, it was really funny. So I got I had that week off, and so I'm dealing with all restaurant that week. And one of the guys, my stunt double, who I had worked with on the Longest Yard, um, out in L.A. and 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 um, New Mexico, he actually got booked for Invincible to be my body double. So we were friends, and he was instead of staying like in Philly at a hotel or whatever, I had him stay with me at the house. So I'm dealing with that, and he's running off doing his thing and Connie's doing her thing with the PR and marketing and all the other stuff that she has to do. And I'm handling the build out and it gets to September 19th and I'm at the restaurant and everything looks great. It's pristine. It's ready to go. And I just, you know, go to check everything one more time. And it's like eight o'clock at night. At this point, we open at 7am the next morning. Nothing fires up in the kitchen. Nothing. There's no gas. And I call her and I go, hey, I, I said, I just went to like check everything. Like the, the salamander's not coming on. I said, the grill's not coming on. The ovens aren't coming. She goes, what are you talking about? I said, there's no gas. She's like, that's not right. I call PSNG. I said, okay, I'll call PSNG. So I, I called the gas company. And they said, all right, we'll, we'll send somebody out. I said, no, you don't understand. Like I, I'm opening tomorrow at 7 a.m. Like I, I'm, I need gas. We'll check it out. Like, your account's fine. Everything's good. Like, so they send the guy out. He gets there at, like, 930. And he says, you need a new meter. The problem is, is you need a commercial meter, and this isn't a commercial meter. This is a meter for just, like, routine commercial business. But you need a commercial meter. You need, like, I said, okay, well, we missed that. I'm like, when can I get that? He's like, well, I don't have one on the truck. He's like, if they have one at the shop, I can maybe get it done tonight. He's like, I'm like, dude. We open tomorrow at 7 a.m. He goes, let me see what I can do. <clears throat> Excuse me. He came back at 1230. He installed it. It was done by 3 o'clock in the morning. We lived like a mile from the restaurant. I went home. I fell asleep on the sofa, and Connie woke me up like 15 minutes later. We got to go. We're, we're opening in like an hour. I was like, oh, my God. So that was my restaurant tied in with, and then I was shooting like two days after that. So <clears throat> you're me. acting, you're running the restaurant. Now, are you in the restaurant a lot as you're acting and when you're helping out when you're not getting auditions? 100%. And so where do you go from there? 
where does it happen? Like all of a sudden, you know, I know you recently, the restaurant, you're not involved anymore, but you were getting more acting parts. Okay. I know you starred in a movie. Um, tell me about that. I know you starred in some, uh, was it science fiction that you were in a big role? Oh, that one. Yeah. Um, when, when did that come in? Were you still with the restaurant when that happened? Yeah, I was still with the restaurant. That was, uh, that was a while back. That was not a while back. It was a few years ago. Crossbreed. Um, yeah, I was the lead in that with, uh, Daniel Baldwin and uh, Vanessa Williams and stuff like that. It was, it was pretty cool. So you're doing that. You're being the lead. And it's like anything. When you get that taste, it's like you have, and I always say, if you're an actor, you have a little bit of narcissism and you also have a little bit of uh, insecurity. It's like a weird mix. 100%. And so how is it for you, though? You get off you get off set. You're starring with Vivica Fox and Daniel Baldwin. He's still Baldwin, you know, and he was in Homicide. And, you know, it's, great it's dude. A, yeah. yeah. And, and she did that. But then you're going back to the restaurant. What does that do to you mentally? Because it's the restaurant's a success, but you want to act. Okay. I mean, the bottom line is you just were on a set, you were the lead, and then you're coming back and there's a kid eating a grilled cheese and crying, and you're like, holy shit, I was just Vivica <laughs> Fox, and now some kid just spit up on the floor. That's right, Vivica Fox. Yeah. Where where were you where were you mentally at that time? Like, did you what were were you trying to sit there and say, I can juggle both like my father, or you said this this is an emotional roller coaster. No, it's 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 not emotional. For me, I loved it because it brought me back down to earth. That narcissism you speak of, and you know the egotism, it's definitely there a little bit. Um, but it's also that insecurity that that hovers right above it that says like, I mean, I I, I auditioned for Woody Allen. I literally sang Bullets Over Broadway for Woody Allen. I auditioned for um, Chaz Palminteri's role, and I mean. You want to talk about shit in your pants and being like, I can't believe what I'm doing right now. That stuff, like I went out on the street in New York after that audition. I almost threw up. I was like, I can't believe the level that I've risen to. And then you go back to your restaurant and you're dealing with people that are like, my grilled cheese is cold. And my kid's hot dog is limp. And it's like, you know, whatever it is, whatever the issue. But that's what I loved about it was it brought me right back to center and showed me what was most important and that's being a person and being part of what we built i mean we 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 put that together so that our children would have a place to enjoy and go to and and call their own and we also built that for ourselves because we we not only are creative but we also wanted to explore how far can we take this so for me, every time I was back in there, it was a blessing. And yeah, there were days where you're just so stressed out and your dishwasher, you know, doesn't show up and you got a hundred people outside the door waiting to get in and you're busy and the kitchen's backed up and you're dealing with spillages and toilets that are backed up. And, you know, you, there's so many different points of stress that come in from any direction in the restaurant business, but you got to handle it all. So if you're going to be good at what you do, you got to handle it all. And that's what I loved about it was that, yeah, I can be an actor and I can be on the set of The Sopranos or working with Adam Sandler or Mark Wahlberg or Sally Field or whatever. And at the same time, I can come back home and I can flip a grilled cheese like nobody's business and run a restaurant like a tight ship. And that was kind of cool for me. So now what happened with the restaurant for you? Um, so I'm shooting Gotham. I was a recurring character on Gotham. And Connie and I divorced. And um, but amicably, very amicably, it just the restaurant business is no place for a marriage. Right. Just destroyed us. You're there all the time. And it's just it, we're there all the time. And, you know, I remember like saying to her multiple times, can we talk about anything else but work? 
please. Can we? And like vacations were few and, and infrequent. Um, just and we had, we had said too, like when we had kids, like we're never going to have anyone else raise our children. Like we want to be hands-on parents. Never do we. We had a nanny by the time Holden was three and a half, because we were just so busy. We didn't have a choice. Um, and it wasn't like live in nanny or anything like that. But it was like we were. She was spending more time with our kid than we were. And then his brother came along, you know, five years later, and it was like we really were tight on family time. So it just wore us down. But um, we, we split amicably, but we stayed business partners and we stayed co-parents 100%. We still get along great to this day. I love her to death. She's a great mom and a great person. Um, we have two amazing boys. But the, uh, the restaurant, you know, took its toll on us. So at some point in time <clears> – <throat> I apologize for my voice. I don't know what's going on with me. Um, we decided that I, <laughs> not a we, I decided if we're going to be in this business, and, and we got hit every week, month, year, you guys should franchise. This is the greatest thing since sliced bread. You need to franchise. I always wanted to franchise. Connie did not. And I was like, listen, the only way to make business money in this business is to have multiple units. Like we're not going to get any further down the road where we want to be with one unit. But if we can open multiples and eventually franchise it out and then sell the whole thing, that might be the way out. That might be the way that like we say like, wow, look at what we built. So I always played around with the idea of franchising out or building another one. And I had a guy come in that loved the idea, loved the concept and was really into what we were doing. And he said, listen, I have a guy for you that might want to open one with you. And I was like, I'm all ears. I'll talk to anybody, but it's got to be the right fit and it's got to be the right location. I'm not just right. going to open one just to open one. Because Connie and I were all about location, location, location. And when I say like, we drove down to Manassas, Virginia. We drove up to Connecticut. We drove out to PA. We went down the shore. We, we looked everywhere for locations because it wasn't, I went to Indianapolis for God's sakes. I went as far as Indianapolis to open a, a pop shop because to me, it was about that feel. Got to have that small town feel. You have to have that main street. You have to have that walk by traffic. You have to have that prominence on main street. It has to be, it can't be like Starbucks, I think goes on corners for the most part, unless it's a freestanding building. If you go to New York, they're on every corner. So the point is like to me and Connie, it was like, it has to be the right fit. If it's the right fit, that's great. So long story short, I find a partner <clears throat> and there's a whole other story to this that I really am not even going to completely go into. But let's just say that um found a partner. We opened up a second shop in Medford. I was shooting Gotham at the time. We had opened to astronomical numbers. We opened way too early. I told them we're not we need another month of training. Like this team is not ready. And I got pressed and was told, like, you need to open. You need to open now. We did a soft opening. The numbers were through the roof. Uh, for a place that does not serve alcohol, whenever I put our numbers in front of an industry person in the restaurant business and showed them the numbers that we were doing, they, could, they were like, that's absolutely amazing. How do you move food that fast? I'm like, we're busy. We're really busy. Um I was up in New York shooting Gotham a few months down the road from our opening in Medford. Partners and I were kind of like head to head because I'm running the thing. I'm the GM and I'm running it my way. They wanted it run their way. They were supposed to be silent partners. And my whole thing was, you guys aren't restaurant people. Like, I'm, I've been doing this for 14 years. Like, I know what I'm doing. 
let me just do my thing. And I had a thing in my contract with them, even though we we're partners, we, you know, fully structured contracts, binding contracts. It said that I could take on any acting work that came along as long as I was not out of the shop for more than three successive days. Didn't need approval, didn't need to run it by anybody. I was GM in the place. I run the place the way I want to run it. I had my assistant GM with me from Collingswood. I brought him with me. So he knew the place inside and out and knew my he ran it the same way I ran it. No issues. I book Gotham. I'm up in Brooklyn for three days. Two days. I'm sorry. I was just there for an overnight. Shooting two days. I get a phone call on set. It's my partner in Medford. Uh, you, we need to talk. I said, okay, look, I'm on set right now shooting Gotham. Like, I'll be back tomorrow. We need to talk now. I said, look, can't talk to you now. I'll be back tomorrow. So I've only been gone for a day and a half. Like, this isn't news to anybody. This all rubbed them the wrong way. Now, you could look at it and go like, well, why didn't you say anything to him when you let me? I said, well, th- first of all, I wasn't in contact with them every day. Second of all, my second in charge was on point and had everything under wraps. And thirdly, like, I, I'm a grown man. I'm an adult. Like, I didn't, I, I'm looking at the contract. It wasn't three days. I don't need to say anything. I come back and at some point in time, I was there was just an issue with a person there and they got into it with the owner, with the partner's wife and things just went to a head from there. And I came back and I agreed to step down as GM. I still maintain my ownership and I just, just washed my hands of the GM. I was like, I'm not stepping foot in there again. I'm done. So they took over. I went back and went to Collingswood for a little bit with Connie and then I eventually got a food truck, and I started doing um, a food truck, Pop Shop A Go-Go, which was basically the Pop Shop on Wheels, thinking that that would be another way to circumvent my last situation, but also stay in the game and keep the Pop Shop name alive and do my thing that way, maybe get to a franchise situation via the Pop Shop A Go-Go truck. Because I still I still love the food, and I love the people, and... Um, you know, my thing was like, if you can't make it to the pop shop, I pop shop can make it to you. Right. And so that's the thing. Like, I yes, do I want to rise to prominence in acting? Do I want to be? You know, it's not about awards or anything. But like, do I want like big roles, big juicy meaty roles? Do I want to be continuously working as an actor? Yes. But I'm also like a real guy. Like I have other interests. It's not. I'm not like a one trick pony where it's like that's all I can do and all I want to do. So like, for me, I love feeding people. I love being in the environment of the restaurant it's just it's a different animal altogether it really is kind of like strip clubs it's a whole subculture it's a crazy subculture so where are you at now what's going on with your life now oh i live in a cardboard box down by the river no i yeah i know are, are you are you still involved with the restaurant or no? no not at all so crazy as it is connie wanted to get out and she was you know like let's get out and i said i'd really don't want to sell like she go, I said why don't I just take over your role here and I'll I'll sell the food truck and I'll take over here in Collingswood and she was like buy it from me I'm like I'm not buying you out like we started this together like I'm not buying you out like I'll run it and if we eventually sell it you know we'll split it and go our ways she didn't want that she just wanted to be completely broken free and clean out I said if you find somebody to buy it go for it like let me know so as it turns out the people that I went in partnership out in Medford 
now wanted the whole thing. So they wound up buying it in September of 2000, what was it, 2020, I guess? Right, bef pandemic. right before, right <laughs> before, I'm, I'm telling you, like timing could not have been better. It was crazy. We sold it in September, right? Maybe the beginning of October. And two months later, the whole world stopped. That's crazy. The whole world stopped. And she and I are looking at each other like, can you believe what just happened? I have, I have one last question for you. Go, man. What's your future for you now? What what is holding you? You got the money from the restaurant. You know you don't you don't have the restaurant. Are you just concentrating acting, or do you have some other thing? What, what what's your future right now? My future. This is what I want for myself. I want to enjoy my boys. I have a twenty one year old and a sixteen year old, Holden and Dash. Um, they are my world, and uh, I want to enjoy my boys. I'm I'm pursuing acting full tilt. Uh, I'm in between that agents right now. I've had two agents. Retire on me. If that's not a clear indication that you need to find another yeah. line of work, no, I don't know what. Like, can you? Is it possible to be that bad of an actor that you're, you force your out. agents into no. retirement? It's the work. <laughs> you know, the thing is, so all these agents have been around forever, and that's the thing. But you know, it's good though. Yeah. So you're acting, and you're with your kids. Yeah, and I want to write. I'm, I'm writing screenplays. Um, I have three screenplays that are in process right now, being looked at from. Uh, folks out in LA I have interest in them which is great and uh that's really what I would do I it's not like everyone wants to direct I'd love to direct these just because I see it the way, I write the way that I see it I, I'm a very visual writer and a lot of people give me feedback on the screenplays and they're like you know you don't need to put all that in there that's the director's choice I said no 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 that's the way the film needs to be shot that's how I see it like that's the funny you know if it's comedy and it's physical comedy you have to that's how it works so I'm kind of like the same stubborn-ass kid playing football, wants to do what he wants to do. That's kind of me with the screenplays right now where I'm pushing back a little bit and going like, no, 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 it's got to stay in. And they're like, stream it out. You don't need it in there. And I'm like, I, I, so I'm, that's what I'm constantly doing now is I'm editing these. I, I write kind of like where my passion takes me, where my brain takes me. So, I, yes, three at one time, yeah, I'm kind of like bouncing back and forth. But that's the way I – I, I do it. Um, but eventually I'd like to get them up on the screen or, you know, to a streaming service. Um, so many opportunities now. It so is. different. So, yeah, somehow, some way, that's that's what I want. And then for the future, future, I, do I go back in the restaurant business? I don't know. Maybe. I miss it. Yeah, yeah you'll, you know? it, the answers will come to you. But, you know, that's yeah. what's great about life. So uh, how, how can people get in touch with you? How can Is there is there a Stinkfisher uh, website? You, got um, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm an old school guy, and I just had um, an agent ask me that very question. What, what's your website? So I, I don't have a website. Like, you want to find out about me? Go on the IMDb, you know? How can people get in touch with you? They, they can reach out to me on uh, Facebook. I'm on Facebook. Um, Stinkfisher, spelled the way it smells. Um, Fisher's no C. So, uh, stink Fisher's there on Facebook. Uh, you can email me at stinkfisher gmail.com. Uh, that's real easy. It's just S T I N K F I S H E R at gmail.com. Either one of those work and, uh, I work for food. So people get in touch with stink, go to IMDB, see what he's been in. Also, if you know any agents, hook them up. 
hook a brother up, get him an agent. So people go, uh, go check out Stink. Uh, and, uh, yeah. And it's, it's, uh, he's got a great story and you know, you can sit there, you can jump from restaurant to acting to football and you still come out. Okay. So people check Stink out, go to IMDb, check his shows out. Um, go get Invincible. My friend Tony Luke Jr. is in that. And then Tony's got a great part in it. Uh, you can check out thecooptank.podbean.com. That's all my episodes. Or go to Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, or uh, Spotify. Also, you can go to coopertalk.net. That's my entertainment podcast. You can find over 940 episodes with lots of rock and roll Hall of Famers, lots of actors. You can email me at thecooptank at yahoo.com. And if you have an event coming up and you need like a red carpet type person interviewing people, we have a system. I work with Joe. My producer, Joe Gangemi, who's the best producer in town on that. So please get in touch with us. I'm Steve Cooper. He's Stink Fisher. That's Joe Gangemi. And I'll talk to you guys next time.